Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week I'm starting a new mini-series on fascist betrayals. That is, fascists and members of fascist movements who have turned their backs on their comrades and, you know, engaged in assassination plots, worked with leftist organizations, worked with members of their governments who are, you know, investigating these fascist organizations. We're going to be dealing with fascist betrayals throughout history, but this week I thought I would start with well, probably the most famous fascist betrayal in history, and one that incidentally happened just last week in history. This is the 20th of July plot, also known as Operation Valkyrie. The 20th July plot was the most potentially successful of the plots or attempts to assassinate Adolf Hitler during his time as the leader of Nazi Germany. This movie has also uh, recently been made into a major motion picture uh, called Valkyrie, starring Tom Cruise. Uh, I'll tell you which one of the characters in our historical drama Tom Cruise was playing, or you could, you know, go on the Wikipedia page and look it up right now. Anyway, uh, Operation Valkyrie, or the 27th July plot, is most closely identified with members of the German military, that is the Wehrmacht, rather than the Nazi party itself. Now, that's an important thing to keep in mind throughout this history, and also just like throughout discussions of Nazi Germany in general, is that the Nazi party and the German military complex, like the pre-existing organization of the German military, were distinct members of a coalition that was essentially in charge of Germany at the time. The other major member of the coalition leading Nazi Germany being uh, business people, you know, capitalists in Germany and in occupied territories. Hitler and the Nazis had always had a tenuous relationship, particularly with the military, because the military represented tradition and conservatism in a way that the Nazis sort of like threatened to upend. The Nazis also created a lot of competing institutions, like military organizations that existed alongside the German military. For example, much of the SS eventually became essentially a secondary army within the Nazi German state. Uh, but the SS was a part of the Nazi party, as opposed to the German state, technically. Now, the ins and outs of that are a little bit more complicated than we need to get into for the purposes of this episode. The thing to remember here is that if somebody is described as a member of the German military, they have, you know, potential reasons to see themselves as potentially uh, critical of Hitler. Uh, the general rule here is that the military welcomed the Nazis initially, but became skeptical and scared as the Nazi party metastasized into something significantly more independent and significantly more powerful within the German state. This was especially true by the late period of the war, 1943-1944, when the writing was really on the wall and it looked like the Germans were losing. Now, the key players, or at least the ones that I'm going to identify in this episode, uh, are the following three people. Now, it's important to remember, A, that uh, there are a lot of people who were involved in this attempt to kill Adolf Hitler, uh, and also that these people who I'm about to talk about, these are not like heroes to be celebrated. These people were fascists. They were willing members of a fascist government that attacked sovereign countries without provocation, that engaged in the Holocaust, that engaged in the massacre of civilian populations and the enslavement of surviving civilians. Uh, these people are terrible. They just happened to also hate Adolf Hitler and tried to kill him. 
Uh, I'm going to be talking about three Germans, but as I said, uh, this particular plot, uh, the Operation Valkyrie, the 20th of, of July plot, actually involved a whole lot of people. I'm going to start out with Hans Oster. Oster was the deputy chief of the Abwehr, uh, which was the German military intelligence branch. Again, uh, that is separate from the Gestapo, which is the intelligence branch of the Nazi party. So, you know, he's, he's one of these people. Uh, he was in the artillery during World War I. He stayed in the military throughout the interwar period, uh, later joined the German police and eventually then military intelligence. He liked the Nazis pretty well, uh, but was particularly disturbed by their history of infighting, uh, that is, infighting within the Nazi government. He was particularly disturbed by the Night of the Long Knives, which is an episode in German history that I've covered previously in the podcast, a time when the Nazi party turned in on itself and Hitler essentially ousted all of his major competitors for power in the party. Oster led a previous aborted coup attempt against Adolf Hitler prior to the 1940s, uh, which would have occurred prior to Germany's invasion of the Sudetenland. Uh, the Sudetenland is the border between Germany and what is now Czechia, uh, which was at the time Czechoslovakia. Uh, this invasion of the Sudetenland was potentially one of the major triggers for World War II. Uh, he, Oster, uh, thought that this invasion would potentially lead Germany into a war that he assumed, like most other people in the German military, he assumed Germany would lose if it tried to fight the United Kingdom and France and Russia again, as it had lost prior to, you know, this time. Like, they lost that same battle in World War I, right? Oster is also important because he is a key contact and confidant of a person named Wilhelm Canaris, who was perhaps the leader of the anti-Hitler resistance. Uh, Canaris was the head of the Abwehr, so Oster was his direct report, not just at work, but also in the resistance. The next person I want to talk about in this particular plot is Henning von Treskow. Uh, von Treskow was a major general in the German army. Uh, his family had a long history of military tradition. Uh, they were formerly nobles in the Prussian nobility. Uh, he, just like Oster, stayed in the military after World War I. He went to the general staff of the War Academy. Uh, he was really seriously rising in his career as a potential German military personnel operative. During the war, uh, Treskow was a pretty decorated and celebrated military leader. He participated in a lot of military campaigns, particularly in what the Germans called the Eastern Front, that is in Poland and in the Soviet Union. Uh, in his time there, he participated in several war crimes and atrocities. Namely, he has been directly implicated and a plan to kidnap Polish and Slavic children, uh, particularly children from Ukraine, to be um, relocated and used as forced laborers. Uh, Tereskow was likewise upset by infighting in the Nazi party uh, and by violation of the rules of war, you know, not like kidnapping civilians because he did that, but uh, violation of the rights of Soviet prisoners in particular. He had a plan himself to kill Hitler in 1940 uh, by having several officers ambush him and shoot him up. Uh, he also had a plan to kill Hitler by setting a bomb on his plane, but both of these plans were aborted because they didn't think that they had the support behind themselves in order to enact them. Now, the final person that I want to talk about here is Klaus von Stauffenberg. 
Stauffenberg, again, uh, was a family of former nobility, but this time from southern Germany. They were Catholics, uh, a military family. He was too young to participate in World War I himself, but in 1926, he joined the cavalry, uh, which was the traditional regiment of his family. Uh, that wasn't as dumb as it sounds for, you know, the interwar period. The cavalry was incredibly important to the German military, particularly for logistics, uh, a massive amount of transportation and logistics that the German military conducted during World War II and prior to World War II was done on horse uh, because Germany didn't really have that many fossil fuel reserves uh, except for coal. And so, you know, they couldn't really like have a car operated logistics system. So they operated it on horses. Uh, von Stauffenberg was a racist and an anti-Semite. Uh, he didn't care for one particular thing about the Nazis, which was that he thought that they went, you know, a little too far. Uh, and he thought that they were a little unstable and that they invited um, instability and conflict and infighting within the German government. He too, like the previous guys that I've talked about, uh, was upset by infighting within the Nazi party after their seizure of power. Um, he had a long history in the German military throughout the beginning of the war. Uh, he was part of military campaigns in France, in the Soviet Union, and finally in Tunisia in North Africa, where he was actually deeply wounded uh, by a British air force by the RAF. Um, he was strafed by a fighter pilot and in this fighting, uh, you know, he was on the ground. Uh, in this fighting, he lost his left eye, his right hand, and most of the fingers on his left hand. So he was left only with partial use of his left hand after this injury. After this, he joined the plan, this, you know, coup organization, to assassinate Hitler. Uh, and the plan was twofold. There were two important parts to this plan. Part number one, kill Hitler and as many leading Nazis not German military officers, but Nazi party officials, as possible at the same time. Two, immediately thereafter, as quickly as possible, get on the phone and talk to as many people in the German army as you possibly can, who are your friends, who are your confidants, or who are people who have already been inducted into this conspiracy to stage a coup against the Nazi party. Now, what this means is that their plan was to kill Hitler and then essentially start what I assume they hoped was going to be an extremely short civil war. Uh, their hope was that the German military would take over from the Nazi party and then pursue a peace with the Allies. Now, the kind of peace that they hoped for and expected was uh, a lot more generous than the one that Germany actually got after their defeat in World War II. What they wanted was essentially for Germany to keep almost all of its territorial gains. Uh, they wanted Germany's territorial gains in what is now southern Denmark. Uh, they wanted to keep all of Austria. They wanted to keep the Sudetenland. They wanted to keep most of Poland. They even wanted to keep a lot of other stuff that the Germans had conquered from the Soviets. Uh, what they were willing to give up was France and uh, the Low Countries. So that is Netherlands and Belgium. Uh, they were also willing to create a buffer zone between France and Germany, an independent Alsace-Lorraine, uh, which is the region between France and Germany. So that was the plan. Uh, the killing Hitler part was the part that they, you know, were really prepared for. And that's the part that they did, in fact, actually try. The plan was to kill Hitler with a bomb hidden in a briefcase. 
the plan had to be moved and changed from place to place because Hitler constantly changed up his routine, partly out of paranoia and partly because he was on amphetamines all the time and just like high and like kind of hard to keep track of. Um, this had previously stymied a lot of other assassination attempts against Hitler because the guy just did not keep a regular schedule, uh, which assassins really kind of need in order to plan something like this. So the plan was to get this bomb in the room with Hitler, uh, to get the bomb as close to him as possible, to leave, and then to hear the explosion and immediately get on the phone and talk to other German officers. Uh, von Stauffenberg, uh, the last person that I talked about, uh, was the one who was actually going to be carrying this bomb into the room. Uh, he also had an extremely difficult task, which was arming the two explosives inside of the briefcase. This was particularly hard for him because, as I previously said, he only had partial use of only one of his hands, and he had to arm this bomb, you know, right before the explosion because, you know, they didn't have like a sort of like remote triggering device or anything. It was, it was, it was a timer, you know. Uh, so unfortunately for us, uh, von Stauffenberg was only able to arm one of the bombs in the time that he had, you know, like pretending to go to the bathroom before putting this bomb as close to Hitler as he physically could. So he could only arm one of the explosive devices. He entered the room. Uh, this was a sort of like general meeting about the war that Hitler was having in what is now Poland, but was at the time Deep East Prussia in one of his uh, two main residences. This one was called the Wolfslayer. Uh, he placed the briefcase as close to Hitler as he could and then got a pre-scheduled phone call uh, that would get him to leave the room for the explosion. While he was gone, and again, very unfortunately for us, a different Nazi uh, who had no knowledge of this plot whatsoever uh, was sitting next to Hitler and must have just sort of like kicked or nudged the briefcase uh, deeper under the table. This put a big, like an extremely big, structural leg of this extremely heavy wooden table between the briefcase and Hitler. And so that meant that when this bomb goes off, because it, it, it did in fact go off, it exploded in the room with Hitler, very, very close to him. It meant that Hitler was shielded not just by this extremely heavy table, but also specifically by the extremely heavy solid leg of the table. And it meant that Hitler was seriously injured by this explosion, but he did not die. Four Nazis in the room did die. Uh, most of the other ones were unharmed, even though the, the room is completely destroyed. If you, if you Google pictures of this room after the explosion, it, it looks like nobody could have possibly survived. But in fact, most of them did. And it's presumably because of the fact that this briefcase was just pushed very far under the table. Uh, so Hitler lived. Uh, and this put an end to any of their plans to try to stage a coup when they heard about Hitler's survival on the radio and determined that it was true. Uh, this brings us to the aftermath of the plot. Uh, Oster was hanged alongside a bunch of other resistance leaders on the 21st of July, once it was found out that he was a part of this plan, and also you know, his involvement in previous other assassination attempts against Hitler. Treskow learned that the plot had failed and realized that he would soon be found out, and so he committed suicide on the 21st of July. He tried to make it look like partisans had attacked him. He, what he did actually was uh, pull a pin from a grenade and let it set off um, under his body. He lay on top of it to try to make it seem as if he had been hit in the front. Uh, 
Uh, he did this to try to protect his family. This did not work. His family was uh, arrested for potential anti-Nazi activities, uh, although they were eventually released. Von Stauffenberg probably got the uh, shortest end of the sick. He was almost immediately rounded up, actually by a co-conspirator, by, by an ally in the conspiracy plot, who was trying to save his own ass. Uh, and so he ratted on a bunch of people, pretending that he had found out about their plot. And he quickly had them executed by firing squad. Uh, that guy eventually also got um, executed by the Nazis. After this plot was found out, there was a major purge of the German military on the part of the Nazi party um, as a result of learning about this like dissent within the ranks. Uh, a bunch of other important members of the German military were found culpable of this plan, specifically not necessarily the plan to assassinate in particular, but the plan to quickly create a military junta to rule Germany in the meantime, you know, after Hitler's assassination, including uh, Rommel, uh, one of Germany's leading military figures and like leading military strategists. So that was the story of the 20th of July plot. And these Nazis, you know, these German military officers who tried to kill Hitler and failed. All right. That was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Uh, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me at Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. And fascism 15. Next week, I will be continuing with this Fascist Betrayals miniseries, uh, as well as our regularly scheduled episode this Thursday covering this week's events in the right wing. All right, I'll talk to you next week.